Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Our message this morning is going to cover verses 7 and 8. Now, I know in your bulletin, you grabbed some sermon notes a little bit different than that. Um, I I had every intent upon preaching through verse 11, but I found many riches here in verses 7 and 8. And I just want to enjoy Philippians. I told you before about 1 Peter. I couldn't finish 1 Peter fast enough, right? But we want to enjoy Philippians, the book of joy. So my, my, my message this morning, the title of my message this morning is changing a little bit uh, just because of the, um, the change in text. Rather than uh, affection and prayer, we see affection in verses 7 and 8. We see prayer in verse 9. My message this morning is called the affection of ministry. The affection of ministry. Because that's what Paul is doing here. He, he is ministering to the folks in Philippi. And he's putting forth his affection, his care, his love for them. Let's read our text. Verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's words here are, are all about his tender affection between he and the Philippians. I mean, you, you, can, you can see it right there in verse 7. It's only right for me to feel this way about you. Better accurate, it's only right for me to, to think and have this disposition about you because here I have you in my heart. And then verse 8, God is my witness how I, I long for you. There it is again. I, I have you in my heart. I, I'm longing for you. And I have an affection for you. The affection of Christ Jesus. To which he calls God to be his witness. How genuine is this affection and, and love that he has. And in fact, this whole book bleeds this theme of Paul caring deeply for these people. His tender relationship between him and those people of Philippi. See, he wasn't writing to a strange church of who he knew little. No, he's writing to a church that he knew well and he loved and cared deeply for. And so we're going to look at the, the affections of ministry today in verses 6 and 7. My, my first point covers the first half of verse 7. I'm just going to take phrases right here from, from the text. And here it is. A genuine affection of ministry will say, I have you in my heart. That's what a, an affectionate ministry will do. A pastor will say that. I take that right from verse 7, right? I, I have you in my heart. Now, children, you know that's not real, alright? Don't be like Nicodemus and say, how can someone be born again when he is old, right? You, you, you're not going to actually be in Paul's heart. You, it's not actually like that. And, and we know that. We use that expression. If someone has some difficulty in their life, maybe some test in the morning or maybe some meeting they tell their boss that they're quitting their job or or, or wanting a raise or, or bringing up some problems or maybe some serious surgery that they're facing someday or or maybe their one of their parents died and they made a trip to their their hometown and and as our burdens become their burdens what do we say when we see them again he says oh how, how have you been you've really been on on my heart don't we say that? And it's not just bad things. We say that good things as well. Right? Your friend gets a new job. Or there's a new, ho- or a new opportunity. Or they move into a new house. Or, or they're going on some kind of missions trip. Or, or they're going to receive a reward at some sort of ceremony. Or, or they have some sort of important soccer match. Or basketball game. Or volleyball match. You, 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 you can just think about that, right? They're, they're going off to state. And you can, when they come back, you can say, hey, you've really been on my heart. How did things go? And what are you saying? You're saying, I'm just thinking about you and, and wanting an update. And, and as you say those things, you say, hey, boy, you've really been on my heart. You just demonstrate that you really care for people. You're concerned with them. If they're facing burdens, you're rejoicing. If, they, you, if they're facing burdens, I'm sorry, you're burdened. If they're rejoicing, you're rejoicing, right? Because you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep, not the other way around. Because that doesn't work very well. It's as if in many ways when you say, I have you in my heart, 
that, that you're saying that my heart is your heart and our hearts are, are one. And that's what Paul says here in verse 7. He says, I have you in my heart. He's saying, you're on my mind. I'm, I'm thinking about you. I am praying for you. And, and this comes in light of our text last week when we looked at verses 3 through 6. Paul doesn't have the Philippians on his heart because things are going badly. Indeed, things are going well. We looked at last week, chapter 4, verse 10, in which Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Right? That, that now you, you sent me this financial gift to help me. It shows that, that I'm on your heart. And now, Philippians, you are on, on my heart. And in fact, as Paul thinks back on the encounters of the church, Paul just is filled with thankfulness that from the first day, from day one, they caught a vision for the gospel, not only for their own city when they began sharing the gospel and people coming to faith in Jesus, but also even beyond that they, they helped Paul in his missionary endeavors to spread the gospel to other cities as well. And we saw that from chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. You yourselves also know Philippians. That at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Just even from the very first day, they caught this vision and they're even helping out the Apostle Paul for his mission. In fact, they were the only church to do this. And so of any church that Paul was thankful for, it's the one that really helped him. It's natural for him to really be thankful and prayerful and joyful. In fact, that's what he wrote in verses 3 through 6. He's thankful, he's prayerful, he's joyful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Just reflecting back from the first day until now. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He's always praying because he's always thankful. He's always joyful. And so here's why. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They joined with Paul. They were about in Philippi, reaching out to others and they were helping him. And then he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, God had begun this work in those in Philippi, in the gospel. And not, not only did they believe in the gospel at first, but at first they became partners with him in the gospel, sharing financially and laboring in Philippi to see the gospel spread. And eventually Paul knows that, that the fruit that he's seen over this decade, God will complete and finish until the day of Christ Jesus. And it stirred Paul's heart to, to thank the Lord. And, and Paul just says, I have you in my heart. This is the affection of ministry that says, you're on my heart. And Paul says, it's interesting here, it's only right. Verse 7. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all. It's only right for me to be thankful and prayerful and joyful. Because, because you're, you're, you're so much with me, I, I have you in my heart that this is the right, the right thing to do. And I, I think that his phrase here in verse 7, it's, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, includes all of verses 3 through 6. He's just saying that, that I am thankful and prayerful and joyful. And it's right for me to be so because God has done such a work in you and I have this affection for you. I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories from church history. It's the joy of story of John Fawcett. I've, I've told this on a couple of other occasions here at Rock Valley Bible Church. You may recognize it, but it bears repeating because I think it, it illustrates well the picture of what, what's happening here in verse 7. John Fawcett was born in 1740 to poor parents in England. At age 16, was converted through Whitfield's preaching. And at age 26, he was ordained and accepted a call to be pastor of a small Congregation in Waynesgate in northern England. I don't know totally about Waynesgate, but we might think of some remote place, right? Like, uh, say, Stillman Valley or Malta. Maybe some smaller place. And it was a, a small church. And for seven years, he faithfully labored there, that church. But after seven years, he was at a crossroads because his family was getting bigger. His financial obligations were getting more and, and the small congregation at Waynesgate could only afford to pay him a meager salary. And so he's, he's thinking, what can I do? Can I really afford this country church as much as I love these people? And it was then that the, the famous Carter Lane's Baptist Church in London, a large influential church where Dr. Gill, in fact, if you even look, John Gill has written some of the best theology across the Internet, a big body of divinity. He's written commentary, I think, on every verse of the Bible, a brilliant man, Big, influential church. 
they called John Fawcett to be their pastor. His move would make sense, right? Would would help him financially. He could move up in the ecclesiastical ladder. He could have a greater sphere of influence with his ministry. And so he accepted the call. And the day came when he and his wife, his children, were to head off to London. Their bags were packed. And in those days, they didn't rent a U-Haul. They, they had wagons. And so they packed everything on their wagon. And it was all set, ready to go. And the people of the church surrounded their wagons with, with tears of farewell. And Mrs. Fawcett said those famous words. She said, John, I cannot bear to leave. I know not how to go. And John said, nor can I. So he ordered for the wagons to be unpacked, put right back into the house where he stayed another 43 years, at least ministering over 50 years there in Waynesgate, just serving the people he loved. It's a, it's a maybe not so big influence, but what, what held him there? It was, here's what I'm calling the affection of ministry. He so longed for the people that he couldn't bear to leave them. Because see, his ministry wasn't about growing bigger and bigger and better and better, more influence. His ministry was about really serving the people he loved. That's why he wrote years later, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. The hymn just describes the sweetness of genuine Christian fellowship. And in his case, just how sweet it was for a pastor and a congregation to share mutual love. So we see with Paul in the Philippians, right? There's a mutual care and affection for each other. They had a heart for Paul, helped him financially in his trials. And Paul had a heart for them and expressed it here in this letter. Verse 7, and I just say this, this is the way it ought to be with churches. Pastors should love their congregations and congregations should love their pastors. When Jesus spoke about shepherds, He spoke about Himself. He said, I am the good shepherd. And He said that He described the difference between the the shepherd and the hired hand. And and the hired hand, when the wolf comes, flees because He's not concerned about the sheep. But the good shepherd knows His sheep and the good shepherd will lay down His life for the sheep. And like David, the good shepherd will fight the bear and the lion with a sling even though you're just a youngster. Because you know your sheep and you care for your sheep and you don't want anything to affect them. And in turn, I do believe the sheep will give all to their shepherd. They know who's protecting him. They will follow him. And indeed, in many ways, that's what John Fawcett was for his people. He laid down his life for the sheep. He didn't pursue greener pastures elsewhere. And the sheep in his pasture, and the sheep in his pasture loved them all their days. That's the affection of ministry. I think that's what's happening here. He has a heart to shepherd those in Philippi. He'd gladly sacrifice everything for them. He looks forward to the day he sees them, actually. In chapter 2, verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly to see you. He just longs for them to see them. But I say this, as much as this ought to be, sadly, this is not the case in many times. Too often is it that pastors don't love their congregations. But oftentimes they love their ministry. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put his finger on the problem when he wrote to fellow pastors. He said this, To love to preach is one thing. To love those to whom you preach is quite another. The trouble with some of us, he says, is that we love preaching. But we're not always careful to make sure that we love the people to whom we are actually preaching. Our Lord looked out upon the multitude and saw them as sheep without a shepherd and was filled with compassion. And then Lloyd-Jones says this to preachers, if you know nothing of this, you should not be in a pulpit, for this is certain to come out in your preaching if you don't love your people. And I say this, pastors can easily love their positions of prominence. Like the Pharisees of old, they love sitting in the places of honor. They love respectful greetings. They love their place in society. They love preaching and too often, too easily, they can lose their focus. Oftentimes, pastors can love their position rather than loving their people. The title of John Piper's book says it well. Brothers, we are not professionals. And what John Piper here is 
is attacking and addressing is the professionalization of the ministry. Where, where pastors sometimes, as particularly bigger churches maybe, think of themselves as CEOs who get their master's degrees to qualify themselves for ministry. They, they dress in suit and tie to, to gain a certain image. They read up on all the leadership journals so as to be a leader of leaders. They run the corporation called the church. Oftentimes that's what pastors are. And then Piper reminds pastors of their true position. He says, we pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and heart of the Christian ministry. The, the more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there's no professional childlikeness. There is no professional tenderheartedness. There's no professional panting after God. It says the aims of our ministry are eternal and spiritual. They are not shared by any of these professions. It's precisely by the failure to see this that we are dying. He's just calling the those who, who climb the, the corporate ecclesiastical denominational ladder. And he's saying, don't, don't be a mere professional. But instead, I think the antidote to that here in verse 7 is instead to have an affection in your ministry. To have a, a genuine heart. And I say a, a, another, another place that, that this is lost oftentimes is um, how many churches across our lands are are focused upon pragmatics of ministry. How to build a bigger church. How to get more people. How to have more influence. Almost as if that's the end of the day. Um, such things like this. I was, I was talking on my phone with my, uh, my friend, with a friend this week who lives in a, another city. He, he's part of a pastoral staff, a large church. I'm guessing maybe 1,500 people. I... Maybe I missed by 500. I don't know how many are at the church, but he's he's a pastor of men's ministries or something like that. And um, and he told me that he loves the senior pastor, loves the executive pastor, has a great relationship with them. Um, believes they're godly men seeking to do right, but he says they've been caught up in the spirit of of pragmatics in the church and seeking to do what they can to build a bigger and bigger and bigger church. So he says that the pastoral staff is required every year to attend one conference together. He says at this conference, he says very little is taught from the Bible, but a lot is taught about pragmatics, about how to, how to make your auditorium feel just right. He, he told me how at these seminars they, they taught about how the thing today is not pews, the thing today is theater seats. And the thing today is not just theater seats, but various sized theater seats to welcome the larger people because so, they appreciate the larger seats. And, and uh, getting the auditorium just right with the, the dimming of the lights at the, the right time. Playing the music that people like because there's certain music that people will come back to and there's certain music that people won't come back to. The color of the walls that people find welcoming and those that people won't find welcoming. And the focus of the service is all to, to do whatever you can so that people come back next week. Your practical how-to sort of messages. Manage your volunteers just right. You've got a big volunteer base. You've got to really work at managing them and doing everything that you can do to grow big. Now, I'm not against those things. All right? we, are, we are hopefully modeling our, our bathrooms back here. We're going to start that here in a few weeks as soon as we get everything lined up. Phil Gusky's doing that. And we will help the, the bathrooms there, which are in need of help. And that wallpaper is hideous. Okay? And um, we, have, we have things that we can change around here just to help make it more pleasant. Those things are, are good there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. But here's what I'm saying. When you get your focus on those things, you've missed it. And we at Rock Valley Bible Church will always place front and center the gospel of Christ. We will always, as Philippians says, we'll rejoice in the gospel. Pragmatics will take a second seat. We'll take a back seat to the gospel at Rock Valley Bible Church. And I think somehow it's tied into this is because the gospel brings a unity and a love and a passion Rather than just pragmatics to build an institution. Because we, we don't want that. We, we want people who genuinely love and serve Jesus. And, and yet I see that many today have lost their, their way. Many pastors view their ministry as a trade. 
Right? They move from smaller church to larger church to larger church. And as if their goal is to reach the, the largest congregation they can get. But Paul knew nothing of this professional ministry. He, he was not a professional in, in any way. He didn't minister to his people because of a paycheck. He didn't see the people as an organization that needs to accomplish some goals and grow bigger and bigger. He saw the church as his own heart. And therefore, he, he cultivated that. And he loved the people. He says, verse 7, I, I have you in my heart. And I just say that that heart affection is at the core of all genuine ministry. It's at the core of what I'm calling the affection of ministry. Well, let's go to the second point. The affection of ministry, Paul would say, we share God's grace. I'm not pulling that exactly from the phrase, but it comes here at the end of verse 7. My second point, we share God's grace. Or you might put it, right? You're partakers of grace with me, but that's long. I want to try to short it. We share God's grace. Paul says, verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. And here's why he has them in his heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. He says, we share God's grace. We've been in this together. You've shared with me in the the afflictions and trials. But before, before Paul gets to that sharing aspect of things, becoming partakers, which, by the way, is related to this word koinonia, sharing. You all are sharing of grace with me. Paul gives a, a brief, in some regards, bi- biographical sketch. He speaks about this. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel and in the confirmation of the gospel, he talks about, about three things of his life. There was the time in which he was imprisoned. There was a time when he was defending the gospel. There's a time when the gospel was confirmed. And I, and I think that what, what Paul is saying is that that identifies his life where he is. And he says, listen, when I was in prison, you were there with me. Maybe not in body, but in spirit. He says, when I was defending the gospel, you were with me. When the gospel was confirmed, you, you stood with me. You stood with me through thick and thin. You were never ashamed of my chains. You were never ashamed of me as prisoner. Instead, you stood with me and even sent me these financial gifts. How, how can I not rejoice with you? How can I not have you in my heart when you have helped me with this thing? And that's the very thing that knit their hearts together. They said, you sacrificed for me and I sacrificed for you. That's genuine ministry. That's the affection of ministry. Mutual sacrifice for one another, even when times were difficult. And I say it's not easy. It wouldn't have been easy to see the Apostle Paul and to say, oh, he's in prison. Let's join with him. Paul wrote to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And he wrote those things because many were ashamed at Paul, the prisoner. And many are ashamed at the suffering of the Messiah. But Paul says, you were never ashamed with me, Philippians. You shared with me. You were with me. Whenever I went, whether in prison, defending the gospel, or confirming the gospel, you all are there. And so I just want to just think through the life of of Paul, through through this lens. Prison, defending the gospel, seeing the gospel confirmed. You know, Paul's path to prison came through preaching. If you remember the latter, fourth of the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 21, is when Paul is, is imprisoned. He um, rushed back after his third missionary journey to be in the Passover, for, to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And I think he wanted to come back because he knew at the Passover, Jews from all over the world were going to be right there and he'd have great opportunities for the gospel. And he wanted to spread the news of the Messiah. However, shortly after he arrived in Jerusalem, he was seized in the temple. Jews from Asia, where Paul had preached, like, like Philippi and like Thessalonica, they were there. Said this, in Pisidian Antioch, Derby, and Lystra, and, and other parts of Asia Minor, they, they were saying this, Men of Israel, come to our aid for this man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. So he came in. People from Asia who didn't like Paul were accusing him and accusing him of three things. He preaches against our people and he preaches against our law and he preaches against this temple right here, this place. 
And as if that wasn't enough, he continued. And besides this, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. These are a partial truth at best. He never brought a Greek into the holy place. He, he never would have done that. He was too righteous a Jew, too respectful of Jews that he wouldn't have done that. But Paul never spoke against Jewish people unless they were hard of heart and refused to believe the Messiah. Then he did. Just like Jesus did. He never spoke against the law unless he encountered those who thought they could obtain righteousness through the law. Something which only Christ could accomplish. For them, Paul never spoke against the temple unless people didn't understand the sacrifice in the temple were merely pictures of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus who took our place hanging on the cross. And he never brought this Gentile into the, the synagogue. That would never have happened. And yet that was the accusation that, that stuck, took place. Paul was arrested and thrown into prison. But you need to realize that the the fundamental reason why Paul is in prison because he was preaching the gospel. Because he was rejoicing in the gospel and having that, that message spread. Because Jews hated that gospel that he preached during his missionary journeys to places like Philippi. The Jews hated the message that Paul brought when he spoke to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. You, your household, it goes to everyone who believes. He didn't say, keep the law and you'll be saved. He didn't say, make sure you go up to Jerusalem, present your sacrifice and you'll be saved. No, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And Jews hated that. And people, by the way, hate that today. They, they want to do something. They don't think that it's just by faith that they can get in. They, they want, to, want to do something. And that's why people hate the gospel today. It's bizarre because it's the most freeing, simple message and people hate it today. They hate it then. On the contrary, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the long-awaited Messiah. You'll be saved from your sin. The path to righteousness comes through faith in Him. To those in Thessalonica, he preached, Acts 17, verse 3, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And they hated that. They ran Him out of town. In Corinth, he came solemnly testifying to the Jews that just Jesus was the Christ. But the Jews resisted and they blasphemed. They, when they did that, Paul shook his garments out and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. He spent 18 months there in Corinth with the Gentiles. Just his reputation, though, about, about the Gospel. And no, so he comes back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21. He's imprisoned. That begins the defense of the Gospel. He's preaching the Gospel, first of all. Um, that's what caused his imprisonment. Secondly, the defense of the Gospel took place when he was accused of, of taking this Jew into the synagogue and speaking against the, the people and the law and the temple. And he, as he was being dragged literally into prison amongst this crowd and this mob of people, he was able to quiet it enough to, to get an audience and he spoke to them. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 22. Basically, he shares his testimony, how Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and how he commissioned him to preach the gospel to all, even to the Gentiles. And when the Jews heard the Gentiles, they hated that and they pushed him into prison. The next day, Paul appeared before the Jewish council, the leaders of whom he gave his defense. You can read about that in Acts chapter 23. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm on trial here today for the resurrection of the dead and caused the Pharisees and Sadducees to argue with each other. And so Paul kind of slipped out of there. But that didn't go well. To save his life from some Jews who pledged him to kill him before they ate or drank anything, he was moved by a big cohort. I think it was 200 horsemen took him to Caesarea down from Jerusalem, down to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea where the Romans could imprison him. And there he appeared before Felix. He gave his defense to Felix about the faith. You can read about that in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 25 tells of his defense to Festus, another Roman magistrate. In Acts 26, tells his defense to King Agrippa, the king over that whole region. And the Roman officials, right, were confused about Paul. He, he seemed to be dealing with matters of, of the Jewish law, matters of which they only pertain to the Jews, not Roman law. And in fact, at one point, Agrippa's judgment on Paul is this, that he was not doing anything worthy of death. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to here a little bit when he's talking about the confirmation of the gospel. The gospel is confirmed, yes, in, in, in people's lives. It's, it's confirmed how he's gone forth. He's, but it's, it's also a sense there where it's confirmed. Like even the, even the Romans say, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. This is a, a fine message. But Paul appealed to Caesar. 
He was sent to Rome. And he went to Rome to appeal before Caesar. That's where we find him when he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's in prison in Rome. But even that didn't stop him from preaching and seeing the, the Gospel confirmed. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So in other words, when he got there into jail, he was preaching the Gospel and is known to the whole guard. And eventually it made its way known to Caesar's household. And do you know what happened when the Gospel came to Caesar's household? They believed. Look over chapter 4. The very last couple of verses, we, we easily skip by these. Verse 21, 22, and 23, they all seem to say the same thing. But there's a, a little phrase in there that illumines how the Gospel was confirmed, that even Caesar's household accepted it. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, and especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In other words, Caesar's household, they especially wanted... Paul to greet the Philippians for them because I do believe they came to faith. That's another aspect of this word about confirmation that as the gospel went to Rome, it was confirmed in the hearts there in Rome of those who have believed. So there it is. Chapter 1, verse 7, the biographical sketch of Paul in his imprisonment, in his defense, in his confirmation of the gospel. The Philippians shared the grace of God with him. They shared in what they had. They shared the same belief, the same trust, and were on the same team together. And that caused Paul to rejoice. And that's really what genuine ministry is about. It's seeing, seeing God work within the pastor and in people and experiencing grace of life together. Experiencing the, the troubles and the ups and downs. And it creates an affection for each other, the affection of ministry. And I think that's what genuine ministry should be like. It should be like verse 7a, I have you in my heart. It should be like 7b, we share God's grace. And thirdly, it should be like verse 8, I long for you all. In verse 7 he writes, I have you in my heart. Now here in verse 8 he, he, he goes to explain that. He says, God is my witness. Just saying this is really true. This is judgment day honesty. Is that, that I bring to the judgment stand, God is my witness. God, is this true or not? This is how we say, I swear to God. That's what he's saying here. I am swearing on my life, on my eternal soul. God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is long for the Philippians. The ESV puts it, I yearn for you all. That is, I have a, a passion for you all, is what's being said there. And later on in this verse, you see the word affection. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. King James, I don't have it right here, but it, it says something like this. I have you in my bowels. Not something we would say today, but a euphemism, what they said back then. Meaning, just deep-seated stomach-feeling emotion is where I have you. I have this great affection, emotion, and care for you. Splagna is the Hebrew, it's a Greek word, it's great Great word, great concept. Just a, there's this just deep, abiding, inner passion and heart for you. So I'm saying, Paul says, I, I long for you. And it's not just the Philippians who receive such expressions of love and care. To those in Thessalonica, Paul wrote this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you'd become very dear to us. And that is what genuine ministry is about. It's imparting your whole life to people. For you recall, brethren, again, 1 Thessalonians 2, nine, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be burdened to any of you, we proclaim to you the, word of God, the gospel of God. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and how uprightly and how blamelessly we behave towards you believers. And just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what Paul was doing. He just gave his life to the Thessalonians because he loved them and longed for them to embrace the gospel. 
Paul did this with those in, in Ephesus. Who can forget the scene on, in Miletus when he called the Ephesian elders to be there in Acts chapter 20? It's a big long speech. I'll just share a few things. You, get, you catch Paul's affection for the ministry. He says, you yourselves know Philippian, know Ephesian elders that from the first day I set foot in Asia and how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I was with you the whole time, he says. I was, I was with you in tears and trials and struggle. I was going house to house. I was in all of your homes for three years. Teaching you and being with you and helping you and serving you. In fact, even Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of the gospel, the grace of God. He says, it's not about me. It's about you. And, And my life, it's not dear to myself. I've given it to you. There's the affection of ministry. Therefore, Paul says, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. This was a three-year ministry, night and day, all the time. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I'm not going to see you again. I'm going to go. Holy Spirit testifies of me that I'm going to be bound, imprisoned. That's where he knew he was going when he get back to, got back to uh, Jerusalem during Pentecost. But after these tender words, they knelt down and prayed together and they wept aloud and they embraced each other and, and kissed each other. It's a sign of affection that they had for one another. That's the affection of ministry. It's the only thing that Paul knew about ministry. The, the only new thing he knew was, was people cared deeply for each other and poured itself out in love. In fact, look at Philippians when he speaks about Timothy. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. In other words, I want to send Timothy. He's going to be there. He's going to learn of your condition. He's going to bring it back. He says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He's got an affection for you and he's going to be concerned for you. He says, For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know, verse 22, of his proven worth. How he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. In other words, Paul wanted to send Timothy because he was so unlike any others. Because he had this affection for ministry. He had an affection for people. Most people, verse 21, seek after their own interests, but Timothy's different. He will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Verse 20. That's what Paul's saying here in verses 7 and 8. I have an affection and a love for you. And I, and I want the best for you. Yeah, I want to send Timothy. He's my best. And, and I'll send him soon, but, but I, I need him right now to take care of me. But, but as, soon as, as soon as I can like, take care of myself or someone else can come and take care of me, I will release him gladly, even though he's kindred spirit with me. And if and when I'm released from prison, I hope to come and see you because I have this affection for you. And that's how it ought to be. With the past people. Sadly, this isn't often, this isn't always the case. I can't say what's often or always, but it's, it's often, it's not always the case. I have another pastor friend of mine. I didn't call him this week, but I've had other conversations with him recently even. He knows little of this mutual love and affection. He's doing a fine job preaching. He's doing a fine job shepherding. He has a great heart walking with integrity. But really one thing he lacks, he lacks a genuine love, reciprocal love with the people of his church. After pastoring for several years in this church, I, I asked him, I said, um, so tell me about your friends in the congregation. Like, who do you hang out with? Or who, who comes over to your house when you want to enjoy yourself? Like, like, like who are your friends? you have some close people in, in your congregation? And he said, I don't have anyone like that in my congregation. Not even one family he couldn't, he couldn't just say, yeah, these, you know, the chairman of the elder board, he's just, uh, he's one of those guys. Didn't have anyone. And I had two thoughts coming to mind. First of all, how sad it is that in many ways he's become a professional in his church. He's at the church building keeping his office hours. 
In fact, I've even invited him to come to some conferences, but he, he can't because he's got to keep his office hours so as to, because he doesn't have love from people to freed up to be able to just say they won't trust him to go. He's got to keep these office hours because there's an adversary relationship between people. He's diligent preparing and preaching good sermons. He's administering the church effectively, performing marriages and funerals, conducting baptism services and all that. But it's a job because he doesn't have this love relationship with people like Paul did. Now, in many ways, it's oversimplification. I don't think it's a fair assessment. I think he really cares for the people and there's a, there's a care back. It's, he's not hard-hearted. He's got some friends. But he doesn't have any close friends in the church. He doesn't have any people with whom he'd say, I really click with these people or I really love this family or these are my, these are my friends. So how sad it is. That's my first thought, how sad it was. Second, I thought, how different his experience in ministry is than my experience. I have a deep affection for all of you. You make up our social circles. When I have with friends, I hang out with you guys. When I want to enjoy myself, you're at our house or we're at your house. The church isn't a job. Now, certainly it's a labor. Shepherding is a is work. It takes time and energy. Um, but I don't engage in your lives because I'm receiving a paycheck. I, I engage in your lives because I want to. And like John Fawcett, there's no place I'd rather be than to be here with all of you. In fact, it is interesting. I need to work really hard to have friends outside the church. Because, I mean, this many people, it's, it's sort of consuming to try to have close relationships with all of you. We try to do whatever we can to, to do that. Um, but we work hard. Particularly kids club kids have allowed at avenues to parents we've had over to our house and sought to reach out to them, reaching out now to our, our neighbors. But it's hard because it, it, we, we have so many friends. We have so many people right here in this body. It's kind of hard. But I can say, verse 8, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In many ways, I consider us to be a giant family. I'm not sure you're in the family or not, but you're we're, we consider you part of our, our family. We, we've known some of you for a long time. Like Milton's, we've known you for a long time. How many eons? Decades. Decades, literally. We, we appreciate long relationships like that. We're reflecting upon, in, in light of this work, that Kishwaukee Bible Church is starting in Rochelle. Um, we're like thinking about our first meeting at Rock Valley Bible Church. And I don't even think you guys were here. You were in, in Wheaton still. But Tim, I think you were here. First meeting at Rock Valley Bible Church. We go back a, a ways. Maybe not decades. You're not decades yet. But when <laughs> close to decades. Um, the Reese, we've known you for a long time. Goes back to Grace Church to Page Days. Has it put 20 years? Something like that. Some of you are known for a couple months, like McDonald's and the Kings back there, just a couple months. Right? If they're visitors today, I would say we don't even know any of your visitors. right? But we've been through thick and thin together. Um, of anything that, that we have sought to do, I've sought to do, is um, just, just be open and honest with you. I'm, I'm walking, seeking to walk with Christ and I'm not perfect. I have my idiosyncrasies. There are things I'm good at, things I'm not good at. And you all know that and you put up with me anyway. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things also I just think about pastors oftentimes consider themselves like in a fishbowl. Um, I, don't, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like you guys are just looking at, at us. I, I feel like, like we're with you, like you're in the bowl with us is kind of what, what I feel like. Or at least we've invited you in. Hey, come and, and be with us. And, and many times in, um, in, in writings, a lot of times, I, I even saw an article uh, this week. I see articles like this all the time that talks about congregations. Give your pastor's kids a break. They're not perfect. You all know that my kids aren't perfect. And you extend much grace. I, I love the story when the Mitchells first came over to our house. And I love telling this story. And uh, Steffi was how old? 
you remember Toby? You, you tell you remember the story. I don't remember the story. She was a few years old. Okay, we'll say for the sake of argument, maybe two. And so we had the Mitchells over and, and having dinner with them. And, and I don't remember this, but Toby says that Steffi climbed up on the table and started walking around a little bit on the table. And I just continued on like nothing was happening. <laughs> it kind of shocked you. And I think, Toby, you said something like, well, if the pastor's kids can just behave, then that's a good place for us. Or something to that. But just that's who we are. We have kids who aren't always the disobedient, most obedient. And you all have showed much grace to our kids. And, and our kids are going to grow up. Um, delighting that their dad was a pastor because of this mutual affection that we have back and forth. Now, and again, it's not, it's not perfect, but by God's grace, you've, you've let me do what I can do and you've overlooked my weaknesses. And that's commendable and we thank the Lord for that. And, and like there is, a, there is a, a, a recent example of this. It's really focused just on, on our life. Most of you know of uh, our oldest daughter's engagement. Most of you maybe don't know. Maybe, maybe news travels really fast, but she broke her engagement last Sunday night. Okay. Um, it's been a trying time for us, difficult time for us. Um, we've sought counsel. We've sought to counsel her and shepherd her through this process. And, and I just say this, that many of you have cared for our oldest daughter, as if she were your daughter. You have um, given us insight into her, their relationship. As we've sought counsel in your situation, it's proved very helpful. You've prayed for us when we didn't even know it. Kind of as things came out, Von Stock with some people said, yeah, we've really been praying for you because... We see some things. We need to know whether we need to talk to you or not. But you, you, just, you have a, a, a genuine love for us and care for that. You helped us really bring clarity to the situation more than you'd ever know. Just kind of what, what things you've said, things you've commented on has really been a, a help to us. I mean, you have an affection for the Brandon family and, and this we're grateful and we have an affection for you and it, is, it has worked out in this situation that, you know, Things aren't just perfect, okay? You, you, you kind of work and, and walk through those things. It's been a very trying time for us this, this, this past month. But I think the, the deal is here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we're trying to do life together. I'm not some hired gun just doing ministry for you. I, we're part of a family doing life together. And for that, I, I rejoice. Indeed, Psalm 133, verse 1 is being realized among us. Behold, how good... And how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And I'm thankful to the Lord for His work among us. I just say, may the Lord preserve our unity at Rock Valley Bible Church. In fact, that's where Paul is going to go in Philippians about unity. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. This is what it means to rejoice in the Gospel, is to, to live in light of the Gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. That, that you, are, you are together on this thing. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united on in spirit, intent on one purpose. There's a unity there. There's a, a Psalm 133, verse 1, unity. And then he addresses the disunity that exists in Philippi. Chapter 4, verse 2, I, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche, women in the church, to live in harmony in the Lord. Let us live in unity in the Lord. He's urging that. And I say, may God, may God keep the unity of our, our body. And, and just... You know, one last thing I want to want to share with you that's kind of along these lines. I, I think very much along these lines. Paul's just talking about the affection of ministry, just back and forth. I, um, this week I, I was speaking with my friend of this big church that he's a pastor. Of. By the way, he's he's moving out of that church. He's talked with the pastor, the executive pastor. They've agreed that maybe it's time for him to go. He's kind of like. I'm kind of kind of good. It's been a time of, of healing for me as he came from another pastor. But I just want a better place that's more aligned towards what 
what I want to do and what he wants to do is rejoice in the gospel and push the gospel forward rather than being someone who helps volunteers. This big church organizing everything like that. And and it's interesting. I, I shared with him the story of my daughter, her situation. And I told him particularly, it's interesting that about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, Yvonne emailed another friend of ours who pastors a church. I don't know. Maybe, I'm guessing again numbers. But just to give you an idea. Maybe 750 people. I don't know, something in that something in that realm. And she emailed her about his wife about six weeks ago to seek some counsel about what it means to have a, a daughter who's engaged in marital counseling and how that works and does it work right or that, things like that. And um, with so many people at the church, her life is so filled with relationships that it took her six weeks to finally email something back and say, hey, finally, can we, can we do something? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not faulting her at all. Great relationship we have. She's a great woman, but it's just that their life with 750 people in the county is so filled with relationships that to to get out of that is difficult. I was talking to my friend in um, the bigger church, and and he also said, "Boy, it is. It is really hard. You're just stretched so thin with so many people, and and it's like endless. Okay, there's another person to meet, and another person to meet, and another person to know, and just gets larger and larger. And I, I I told my friend that. Our church may not be the biggest church on the block, but we're enjoying doing life together. And he, he said this. He, he said, the, the grass isn't greener on the other side. He said, you, you're very blessed just to be there and you're doing a good work just devoting yourself to a small group of people, just imparting your life to them. And, you know, it may not have, Rockville Bible Church may not have all the influence in the world, but at least it has a deep influence and a helpful influence in all your life. And if I... I die knowing that I shepherded a hundred people well. I'll praise the Lord. Uh, Mark Dever likes to quote a guy that says something like this. He says, on the, on the judgment day when a pastor gives account for the flock, people that he shepherded, he will not be concerned that day that his flock was not big enough. You catch what I'm saying? Is that the bigger flock makes that more difficult, makes that accountability harder. And I just say, I... I'm enjoying what we're doing. Uh, I have a great affection for you. I want to just keep giving my life to you, seeing you all grow in Jesus. Um, and I do think that we have something special here. I do expect some growth to come. We, these front pews were just put on. They weren't here last week, but we filled up people in every pew. Uh, last week. In fact, I think, yep, this pew's empty. So we have fewer people today than we had last week. But, but as people come, they sniff a, a fine aroma in our church as they see people interact. And it will attract others. And bigger isn't bad. But I'm content right here where we are. I want to continue to, to share with you and have an affection for you and continue to reach out with the gospel. And by God's grace, people perhaps will be saved and come into our fold with changed lives eternally. And I just say this, that my, my heart is Paul's heart. I, I have you in my heart. You all are partakers of grace with me. And I long for you all. Let's pray.